You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Dominique Cleary. Dominique was born in Quito, Ecuador, but has been living in Ireland for many years. She's published three essays in the Dublin Review. The piece she's going to read and discuss is called Advice on Motherhood. It was published in number 72, the autumn 2018 issue of the magazine. It also appears in Show Your Work, an anthology of essays from the Dublin Review. Dominique, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Angela. Um, As a person who has followed the review, Dublin Review, for years and have collected the issues, I'm just uh, really chuffed to be here. Well, I've been enjoying reading your work over the years in the review. you have been publishing since before I started working with the review. You started in 2014 with an essay called The Honorary Consulate. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your life before, we, you know, you read the essay you're going to read and we'll discuss afterwards. Um, but initially, The Honorary Consulate, which was the first essay you published in spring 2014 with the review, kind of outlined your life and your background, which is unusual. You were one of the first Ecuadorians to live in Ireland. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, well, um, I arrived to Ireland in my mid-teens um, and um, went to finish school in Ireland and uh, didn't start writing until much later in my life. Um, and I guess the point at which I started writing might uh, indicate a little bit of my past. I went home when my grandfather got a heart attack in 2008 and I went into his study and was looking at all his books. He was a writer and I realized I hadn't actually taken the time to read them. So I picked up his memoir and I took it home. And um, when reading it uh, in 2008, I realized that there was a chapter in it that was not his to tell. It was really my story, which was a story of when I left Ireland, when I left Ecuador rather, and came to Ireland and how dramatic that change was for me and how difficult the cultural abyss, mapping out that, that cultural abyss between Ecuador and Ireland. And I began to think about trying to write then that's where it started for me Mm. um uh yes so i I grew up there i was there in school uh, all the way up to my teens and left behind an idyllic childhood which sometimes makes me think about uh when i still call ecuador home at times i think i kind of slip and i think well what is that and i think it's because if you have a memorable childhood that's where home is. Yeah. And uh, you moved here in 1982. You were 14 at the mm-hmm. time. So that's a really formative age. You know, when people is. very often say they're from wherever they spend their teens, mm-hmm. whereas yours is kind of cut in half there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a very difficult time to move, I think, because, you know, you're at that age, you're just beginning to to find out who you are, to, to maybe forge friendships. And it's it was a, a difficult time to change culture completely, to... Uh, kind of come to Ireland from a climate that was so different Mm. to people who very different culturally even though I spoke English at home my written English needed work and then add to that all the Irish names and you know going to school and trying to try to understand a whole new culture a Mm. way of life and um your parents never really filled in why you suddenly left Ecuador but you came to Ireland because your paternal grandparents had retired and moved to the embassy belt in Ballsbridge. That's right. <laughs> I presume with Cleary that they were of Irish extraction and that's how they ended up in Ireland or? Um, actually, it was a story. It's a story that my grandparents told me that basically my grandfather was working as a general counsel for an oil company in the US and 
had to fly to Europe uh, on a big project and he brought hit my grandmother with him. And uh, it was one of those, it was in those days when you would touch down in Shannon for, to refuel. And they had a few days over, so they decided that they would actually t travel around Ireland. And they did that, and I guess they fell in love with what they saw. They had been working and living in New York and then in Florida, and this was just so charming and calm and beautiful. And they decided to then buy a place in Kerry, and that's how come we, Ireland came to be part of our, our family life. So we began traveling to visit them in Kerry when I was very young, when I was five years old, I think it was the first time. Mm -hmm. I arrived. Yeah, so that's your father's family. Your mother yeah. is Ecuadorian. She and is. that's how your father ended up living in Ecuador. Yes, so, and okay. that's how come we came. I think he wanted yeah. me to, wanted us to uh, get educated in English. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents were here. And so it just seemed like a perfect solution. Mm -hmm. um, all of this is relevant to the essay you're going to read which is called Advice on Motherhood, because it includes in the essay the opinions of a whole cast of people from all <laughs> over the place, including the people we're talking about. So yes. that's, that's sort of why I'm bringing it up. But the other reason I'm bringing it up is what fascinated me most about the first essay that you wrote, the Honorary Consul, was that you became the Honorary Consul for Ecuador in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like so the closest embassy obviously would have been London, but not only have they no jurisdiction in Ireland, they were also quite preoccupied because this guy called Julian Assange <laughs> had shown up on their doorstep. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't even know what an honorary consul did until I read your essay. <laughs> and it, it absolutely fascinated me. And I suppose you were quite, you are and were qualified for it in that you had worked in conflict resolution, international relations uh, yes. law. Yeah. I was a, I was a solicitor first. Um, and then when I when I gave up my my day job because of children, as I, I discuss in the essay, I, I went into mediation. It was conflict resolution. It was a, a commercial mediation mostly. Um, so, yes, I, I mean, I can I can think I can manage myself okay yeah mm -hmm. and that again is relevant to this essay because you were in this essay when you talk about advice on motherhood and having children it's very much about being a professional a woman with a career and trying to juggle it all yes and wishing you could have it all I could have it all do you uh, think it's a bit of a swindle that we're sold as working mothers that you can you can do it all do you know I wrote this essay it's published 2018 isn't it so mm. Robin, who I mentioned in the essay, was turning 18. She was just about to go off to college. And in the year prior to that, she was looking at all her options. And as a mother, I was watching this, you know, her and all her energetic, bright, idealistic friends making plans for the future. And I was just hoping that she could have it all, that she could, that things would change sufficiently, that change, you know, in the last 20 years, that things have changed sufficiently so that the decision that she makes would would be one that she could, you know, fulfill to the end. Um, I think, I think it's a, yeah. The question you're asking me is, um, well, I guess it, it it's not just what happens in the empl employment situations. It also means, it also requires a shift in our conditioning, not only as women but also in our partners, and who gets to, you know, how that division of duties is is divided up, and and who, mm -hmm. and how. Get, who gets to, to look after the children and, and how, that's, how that's done. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I can totally see that. But what's interesting is, is that it isn't simply just coming from a um, what you might call a patriarchal workplace or from, you know, our male partners, but it's coming from everywhere and from women. Absolutely. Sometimes women are the hardest on us. Yeah. 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 So Joe, you know, I'd love you to read the essay and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, okay. And here is Dominique Cleary reading her essay, Advice on Motherhood, which appeared in number 72, the autumn 2018 issue of the magazine. Advice on Motherhood. My grandmother. Not long after I got married, my Ecuadorian grandparents came to Ireland for a visit. They slept on a double bed that my husband and I had borrowed. It took up most of the space in the spare bedroom of our small flat. My grandfather's morning routine required that I boil a kettle and fill a basin with water for shaving. My grandmother joined me in the kitchen every morning in her long flannel nightdress. She thought that at 27, I was late getting married, and now she saw an opportunity to find out why I wasn't yet pregnant. My body would not be fresh and young forever, she reminded me. The longer I waited, the harder it would be to conceive. She held my hips or placed her hands on my abdomen as she spoke. Some mornings her eyes would twinkle as she inquired whether there was any chance it might have happened the previous night. This was over 20 years ago. She was in her early 70s, and she hoped I might produce her first great-grandchild before she died. She is now 94. 17 great-grandchildren have been born since. My doctor. On New Year's Eve 1999, my husband and I walked into town and stood under the bells of Christ Church Cathedral. Our neighbor's girlfriend had been picked to ring its bells to herald the new millennium. She had been practicing for weeks. Our neighbor would become her husband and one of our best friends, and he has since passed away, but that night he sat in his wheelchair under a thick hat and blanket beside us on the pavement, looking up at the belfry as we counted down. Later, on a bridge over the Liffey, we met my husband's brother and his wife, who announced that they were expecting their first child. We passed around my husband's hip flask, and we all took a swig of whiskey, except for my sister-in-law, who declined with what appeared to be self-satisfaction. In spite of the buzz of the night and their good news, or perhaps because of it, my heart was heavy with uncertainty. I had been trying to conceive for over a year, from the day I stopped taking the pill, I watched months clock by, cycle after cycle. My husband and I hadn't started to talk about it as a concern, but that night I resolved to buy an ovulation kit. I finally got a faint positive line on a home pregnancy test, but had a feeling that the embryo hadn't found a comfortable place to implant. I willed it to hold on, but 10 weeks later I began spotting. I thought it was all over, until I went to see a consultant gynecologist, the man who had looked after my American grandmother when she first came to Ireland, and then my mother. He scheduled an early scan, and I saw a steady little heartbeat. I had possibly lost a twin, he said. Best not tell anyone yet. Anything could happen. My boss. I told my boss as soon as I started leaving the button at the back of my skirt undone. I assured him that nothing would change. I had a woman in mind who set the standard, it seemed to me, of what was expected of someone in my situation. 
I had met her while apprenticing at a private law firm before starting my job as an in-house lawyer in a large institution. On her due date, she went straight from her desk to the labor ward. She delivered her baby and had files couriered to her bedside. Some of the other women in the firm were aghast, but I could see why she had made it to partnership. I believed she had figured out what was required of her to be taken seriously as a woman, and more importantly as a mother in the workplace. My boss adjusted his tie, swung back in his leather swivel chair, and crossed his ankle over his knee as if to consider my words. He took a moment to look at me and smile. Then he swung forward, put his elbows on the desk and leaned towards me as if to let me in on a secret. Everything changes when a baby is born, you'll see, he said. My wife gave up work, and if, like my wife, you are lucky enough not to have to work outside the home, why do it? A male colleague. A male colleague overheard another congratulating me at the photocopying machine under the stairs and punched the air as he passed. Yes, he said, sounding pleased, we get to see Damo with big tits. A couple of hours later, he peeked his head into my office door tentatively, mimicked an angry face and jest, and raised an eyebrow as though to inquire whether I had taken offence. It was easier to laugh at his idiocy, so I acted as though I hadn't given his remark a second thought. He then stepped into my office to give me some advice. Don't wear your hair tied back like that, especially when you start getting bigger and you opt for flat shoes. You'll only look like you're about to clean your house. He pointed his index finger at me, winked, and clicked his tongue in time with his thumb like he was taking a shot at me. Stay gorgeous, all right? My boss's secretary. When I started to get drowsy after lunch, I hid in a toilet cubicle so as not to get caught dozing. I closed over the seat, sat down, and leaned my head against the dividing panel for a delicious few minutes of sleep. I never stayed away from my desk long, maybe only five or ten minutes, but a short nap gave me the necessary boost mid-afternoon. The most difficult thing about the third trimester was my constant hunger. Catering staff wheeled trolleys through the corridors to serve executives their mid-morning scones and tea. My boss had an office beside mine, and his tray arrived every day at about 10.30. The scones were straight out of the oven, and I could smell the melting butter. He was often at meetings in another building when the trolley arrived, and it would kill me to see his tray left untouched on a small circular table in his office. One day when he was away from his office, I called his secretary who sat upstairs in a space shared by other administrative staff in the department to ask what time he was due back. I'm not sure how informed or truthful she was that day or whether she thought it was any of my business, but she told me he had no plans to return. In any case, I sat down at his circular table with my back to the door and stuffed a large chunk of crumbling, warm scone into my mouth. While flicking crumbs off my swollen belly, I heard a sound over my shoulder and turned to see my boss watching me. My husband, my boss, my father-in-law. I went into labor having read about all the benefits of a non-medicated and natural delivery. But before long, I began howling for pain relief, 
I lost all composure. I didn't trust my body to do what nature intended. I curled up on my side to allow them to inject the anesthetic into my spine and was relieved when all feeling left my body from the waist down. Propped upright, I watched as my legs rolled off the side of the bed involuntarily every now and then, and my husband pushed them back up again. He called out clues from the Irish Times crossword to distract me from the dull sensation of a coconut-sized head bearing down on the base of my pelvis. I phantom-pushed Robin out to the cheers of the midwives, who had coaxed me to imagine the action in my head, even if I couldn't feel it. They placed her tiny pink body under my T-shirt, skin to skin. She was small, but she was loud. My husband told me that the baby I had carried throughout my entire pregnancy had been an abstract concept to him until he finally saw her emerge. He was startled at how grey-blue she looked before she drew her first breath, and when she let out her first cry, he felt an awe-filled surge of relief. My boss came to the hospital that same day and brought flowers. My father-in-law came soon after him with a tray of six sugar-covered jam donuts and ate half of them while he sat beside me. My mother, my aunt. All the books I had read on pregnancy ended at the point of delivery, so I had little idea of what to do with the baby in my arms. My mother was busy working, and she seemed nervous and evasive every time I asked her for help. It was so long ago, she said, she couldn't remember how she had managed. My great-grandmother had bathed me, she added. The few times she held Robin so that I could jump into the shower or put on a load of laundry, she handed her back to me as soon as she started to fuss. What perplexed her most was my insistence on breastfeeding. She didn't think I was capable of satisfying Robin and put her constant crying down to hunger. She said I would ruin my figure, that my breasts would begin to sag before their time. I became intensely self-critical. I felt overwhelmed by the possibility that my every action with Robin had the potential for long-lasting effects. I was afraid to damage perfection. I was lonely, and I paced the floorboards with Robin in my arms, waiting for my husband to come home from work, comforting her with songs and rhymes in English and Spanish that I dug deep to remember. She wouldn't let me put her down, and I couldn't bear her crying. I counted my steps and counted her heartbeats to pass the time, making the small space bigger by walking into the corners of the room. Every night, it seemed I had done something to trigger her wakefulness and ruin the prospect of either of us getting a restful night's sleep. I started emailing an aunt in Ecuador with desperate questions. How long until I revert to the person I used to be? How long until I can establish a routine I can live with? Can lack of sleep eventually drive a person insane? Her advice was to give up the fight against nature. She's here for life, she said, to keep you awake, to teach you to be selfless. Embrace the chaos. The public health nurse. A nurse from the local health center rang my doorbell, and it was only when I opened the door that I remembered I had been told to expect her for a regulation visit. It was noon, and I was still in my pajamas. Robin was on my shoulder. On the advice of a woman I'd met in the maternity ward, 
I had stuffed chilled cabbage leaves down my bra overnight to relieve the swelling and the pain of cracked nipples. I smelled of sour milk and boiled vegetables. I left the nurse standing on the doorstep while she talked until she finally asked herself in. I was soon asking her questions that sounded more like pleas for help. She made two suggestions. I should put my baby down and plug in a hoover or a hairdryer beside her. The hum would put her to sleep. Then I should have a pint of Guinness. It would be good for my nerves and would ensure more sleep for both of us. She could tell I wasn't buying any of it, but her concern for my mental well-being brought her back to my door again and again until I was a little more in control and able to show her some gratitude. The book. A well-meaning friend gave me a book that presented motherhood as a military regime. It charted every detail of daily life with exact times to the minute. Went to pump my breast to fill little bags of milk to freeze for emergencies. Went to feed the baby and how many ounces. Went to wash bottles. Went to put the baby down for naps and for how long. Went to play. Went to give the baby a bath. It suggested buying only white clothing for the baby in order to streamline laundry. I was due to return to work and I convinced myself that my success or failure as a mother and a professional hung entirely on mastering this regimen. For a few neurotic weeks, I battled hard against the chaos of nature. Robin ate and slept and cried when she felt like it, and there was little I could do about it. I started to believe I was inept as a mother, and it nearly broke me. Eventually, I got some sense and threw the book in the bin. The Crash I left work at 5.30 on the button, cycled home and picked up the car. I avoided the obvious routes to the nursery, weaving my way down a maze of back streets. I parked illegally in front of someone's driveway down a cul-de-sac, ran to the crash gate and rang the bell before six. There was an extra charge for every five minutes I was late to cover insurance costs and overtime pay for staff, but it was the judgment of the head nanny that I dreaded most. I and a couple of other mothers like me would arrive apologetic, red-faced and sweating almost every day, relieved that no one had locked the gates for the night and left our toddlers in their car seats outside on the pavement. Not that they would have ever have done that, of course, but the threat felt very real. Inside the door, our babies were lined up in their car seats, and I sometimes wondered how long they spent there. Robin already, with an uncanny ability to read my emotions and to soak up the angst and guilt I projected, would burst into tears of indignation, her arms outstretched and hands grasping the air as soon as she saw me. My husband. My husband did the early runs to the crash, which meant I could go straight to my desk without having to negotiate the morning traffic. I don't remember teasing out the consequences of our division of duties, but it was understood that he benefited from being able to stay at work as late as necessary. We were both convinced that a job in a private law firm like his was more cutthroat than an in-house job like mine, and that he couldn't be seen rushing out at 5.30. On the mornings of teething fevers, chickenpox, pneumonia, with antibiotics and inhalers, 
and the innumerable vomiting and respiratory viruses. My husband and I compared diaries to weigh up who, in economic units, was worth more at work. It was an artificial exercise that always produced the same result, because although I was earning a higher salary at the time, he worked billable hours, had financial targets to meet, and was accountable to many clients, whereas my only client was my employer. I often insisted that my career was just as important as his, but there was hardly ever any real debate about who would stay at home. It was mostly I who made the mortifying phone call looking for another day off. I think a part of me was resigned to the fact that a glass ceiling would eventually impede me anyway. Although neither of us held a conscious belief that the mother ought to pick up the parenting slack and shelve her own career ambitions if necessary, we both ended up behaving as though we did believe this. I never insisted on an open discussion about our shared responsibilities or a fairer way forward. I was so overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day reality of motherhood that I found it hard to imagine a future in which I could once again focus on myself and my career. My American Grandmother My American Grandmother suggested I hire someone to take the pressure off in the evenings. Come home from work when you're good and ready, she said. Your nanny can hand over the baby and you can play with her while she makes your dinner. Don't kill yourself trying to be everywhere at once. But I didn't want a stranger in my house, nor did I have any desire to see less of Robin. My mother. When I was a child in Ecuador, my mother worked full-time as my father's equal partner in their textile business. As a toddler, I was left at home with a housekeeper and a young niñera. I don't remember being anything other than happy, but I do recall waiting for my mother to come home every day for lunch and how I felt when I climbed onto the bed beside her for a 20-minute siesta before she left again for the afternoon. We lived in a third-floor apartment, and my parents' bedroom window opened onto an internal concrete courtyard. There was no view other than of our kitchen window across an empty shaft. As a result, the curtains were always pulled and the room was forever dark, day or night. It was easy for me to doze off in the middle of the afternoon curled into my mother's warmth. I always held her finger so that I would wake up when she moved to leave. One day she replaced her finger with the arm of my ragdoll. I still remember waking on the vast empty bed in the dark with a pang of loneliness at the realization that my mother had more important places to be. My obstetrician. The second time we tried to conceive, it happened on the first attempt. I continued to cycle, even when my center of gravity changed and my balance got a little wobbly. I was anxious that if I used the car or public transport to pick up Robin, I'd be late. Sometimes I got dizzy and had to dismount and sit on the ground with my head between my knees for fear of passing out. My obstetrician, who didn't know I was still cycling, recommended I sip water regularly to keep my blood pressure from dipping. I started carrying a bottle around everywhere I went. The security guard at work. At some point, I began to notice that the phone on my desk had a tendency to ring just as I was getting up to leave at 5.30. I often ignored the phone and sneaked through the shadows in the corridors that led to my locked bicycle in the car park. 
I recited a mantra in my head to dispel the guilt. Nothing here is a matter of life or death. Everything can wait until tomorrow. I justified myself to myself by counting the hours since I had left Robin in the morning. Nine wakeful hours, motherless. One day, when I thought I had made a clean escape, I was stopped by the security guard at the gates of the car park. Someone had transferred a call for me down to his kiosk, and I wondered if it had been done out of spite. The security guard was holding the receiver out the window at me. He told me I had better take it. I considered making a final burst for freedom, but we had locked eyes and it seemed impossible. I took notes on a pad resting on the handlebars. It wasn't an important or a particularly long call, maybe just under 10 minutes, but it was enough to set off my panic about arriving late at the crash. I tried to get some momentum into my pedaling, but I was breathless with choked up fury and frustration. It was hard to cycle and cry at the same time. The architect turned sexologist in Ajaccio. I brazened out a request for leave and we booked flights to Ajaccio, Napoleon's birthplace. Unbeknownst to us, Robin was brewing a 24-hour bug and it manifested itself in a fetid eruption at the departure lounge. By the time we touched Dan, we had changed her out of every piece of clothing we had packed into our carry-on luggage. She disembarked in a vest and a bare, rash red bottom. The hotel looked promising. It had rotating sprinklers and palm and citrus trees. Purple bougainvillea crawled along the walls of its three stories. My husband soon started feeling queasy, so I left him and Robin napping in the cool shade of the room and went to find a deck chair by the pool. I sat beside a man with an unsightly brown stain on his leg. He had a newspaper over his face. Across the pool from us, a hairy man lifted a small wriggling boy by his arm and dangled him. A moment later, he smacked him with a resounding whack. The boy screamed in rage rather than pain as he swung in the air with the force of the blow. The man beside me sat up and his newspaper slid to the ground. He spat out in Spanish something about the futility of brutish behavior. The boy would only remember his own anger, he said, and not his punishment. Children remember how you make them feel, he said in English as he turned to me. I replied to him in Spanish. He took my hand and kissed it. He was from Argentina and seemed delighted to meet a fellow South American. Speaking with the ease of a longtime friend, he started telling me the story of his life. He told me he had a memory of his mother's voice on the phone in another room when he was a little boy, not much older than the child we had just witnessed being smacked. He remembered the tenderness in her voice and also how he felt when he realized she wasn't talking to his father, but to another man. That emotion was still visible in his face as he recounted the story. He told me he had been an architect in Buenos Aires, Japan, and New York, and had trained with Frank Lloyd Wright. I made mental calculations. He must be in his 70s. He wanted to know what I did for a living, and looked impressed when I told him, ah, a professional and a mother. He pointed at my swollen belly. I nodded and faked a heavy dose of self-congratulation. 
He didn't know the half of it. My inability to juggle was becoming as undignified as the five pairs of dripping wet tights I hung on my radiator every Sunday night for the week ahead. He told me he'd been successful, if wealth was a measure. He had a beautiful wife and healthy, intelligent children. But when he reached 50, he realized he felt uneasy and unhappy. He said he had reached the top, but knew he had climbed the wrong mountain. So he went looking for a therapist. None would take him on. He said he didn't present as a man who needed fixing. People saw only the risks involved in deconstructing his life when he should be settling down to enjoy its fruits. But eventually, he found a good psychotherapist, and now, 20 years later, having divorced his wife and become a sexologist, he claimed to be a new man. I suddenly felt self-conscious. I spread my fingers across my bump and waved up at the hotel balcony, where my husband was awake now and trying to read. Robin was on the balcony beside him. The Argentinian man waved up at him, too. He told me he had seen us arrive earlier. I wondered just how much he might have witnessed. Robin threw a piece from her wooden jigsaw puzzle over the balcony railing. It felt into the rusting gutters along the awning above the restaurant. She pointed at it, and her little face reddened as she cried. Then she stopped abruptly, looked for another piece, and, without taking her eyes off her father, reached for it and held her hand over the railings waiting for a reaction. The Argentinian man smiled at me as we watched and said that it was nice to be as young and full of energy and hopes for the future as we were. But then, almost under his breath, and in a premonitory tone, he quoted Carl Jung to me before excusing himself and leaving the poolside. Wholly unprepared, we embark on the second half of life. We take the step into the afternoon of life. Worse still, we take this step on the false assumption that our truths and ideals will serve as before. But we cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be little at evening, and what in the morning was true will at the evening have become a lie. My obstetrician. It took two epidurals to deliver John. My husband asked me whether I had noticed the obstetrician stroking my thigh during labor. I hadn't, but I knew I had hugged his arm for comfort. When he placed John at my breast, he said, No more babies. You have one of each now, and you've done enough. It was strangely reassuring to hear him say that. He restricted my visitors and arranged that I get an extra night's rest in my overheated hospital room that smelled of rotting grapes and wilting lilies. John curled up on my bare chest for three days and nights until he was ready to be swaddled and placed in a cot. He was a calmer baby. He cried less and slept more. Things would be different this time around, I promised myself. Ana Álvarez Errecalde Birth of my daughter, 2005, is a photographic diptych by the Argentinian artist Ana Álvarez Errecalde. The first image shows the artist standing naked and bloody with her newborn daughter in her arms, still connected by the umbilical cord. In the second, she is sitting on the floor beside a pool of her afterbirth. She is smiling, in control, 
unapologetic about the gore, discomfort, trauma, and general messiness involved in bringing a new life into the world. My boss and my husband. Getting from Monday to Friday was like swimming the length of an Olympic-sized pool without coming up for air. I hated having to wait to see my children at the end of the day when they were tired and cranky. I was missing their milestones. First words and first steps were reported to me by the staff in the crash, along with more perfunctory accounts of what they had eaten, whether they had napped and for how long, and the number and consistency of their bowel movements. Under the Parental Leave Act, my husband and I were entitled to 18 weeks unpaid leave each for each child under the age of eight, 72 weeks in total. My husband didn't want to avail of his rights. Men weren't taking parental leave, not back then anyway. He would lose traction at work as well as income. The leave was designed to be taken in large chunks, but it could also be taken piecemeal with the agreement of the employer. I sounded my boss out and made a formal request to take every Wednesday afternoon off unless a case of mine was listed in the forecourts on that afternoon. I could afford to do it this way and it would ensure that I'd be present at my desk every day of the week. My boss reacted with a low-grade vibration of disapproval. He cited business exigencies and inconvenience but in the end he let me take a small part of my entitlement in that way. I suggested I could take the rest of my entitlement in short blocks during court recesses. Months went by without a reply, and I found the uncertainty stressful. Meanwhile, an employment agent called me out of the blue and offered me a job interview with a competitor. He made it sound like I was being headhunted, but I suspected that attempts were being made internally to move me out of the way. The thought of starting from scratch somewhere new was exhausting, so I declined the opportunity. My boss then hinted at the possibility of letting me take an unpaid career break. He presented it as the pause I probably needed, with the promise of a job at the end. I had started taking some unpaid leave when the kids were sick. I'd run out of paid leave and my boss had told me that I had exceeded the few days of emergency leave that had been available to me. Then Robin got chickenpox. And when she was finally well, John came down with it. I was out of the office for over two weeks. On a couple of occasions, when they were getting better, I tried to drop them off at the creche so I could go to work, but the creche nanny lifted up their vests to point out raw spots that hadn't healed fully. My husband encouraged me to apply for the career break. We'd figure out the money, he said, and it would be good practice to attempt to live on one salary in case I didn't feel like going back. My boss had meanwhile never given me a response to my request for parental leave. I would have liked to have been fully informed of my options, but it was a stressful time, and I was tired of waiting. So I signed the contract and was on my way. When I met my boss a year later to discuss my return, he showed me organizational charts. He talked about the restructuring of the office, the new reporting lines, and the promotions that had taken place while I was away. I hadn't been around to apply for the new posts created or to argue the value of my position within the department. I had been head of a litigation section, and now it looked like I had been tagged on as an afterthought in the corner of the org chart. Technically, it was the same job, 
but it was clear that in reality I was looking at a demotion. He wasn't trying to entice me back. The student. On my first day as a law student in Trinity College, I took a seat in the middle of a small lecture theater. I wasn't looking around at the time to assess the gender split, but I think it was fairly even. There was a seat beside me that was free, and a stocky fellow in a crew neck sweater and cords asked if he could take it. I introduced myself, and he began to tell me what was on his mind. You know you shouldn't be here. I thought I might have mixed up my lecture theatre, so I started to check my diary. You're taking up a valuable space, he continued. I don't know what you mean, I said. The CAO points threshold for the course had been high, and I had just scraped my way in, but he couldn't have known that. Look around at all the women, he said. For every one of you, there's a man sitting home right now that didn't get in. Most of you are going to get married and have children anyway. What a waste. I thought he was joking at first. No one would say such a thing out loud in the late 1980s, even if they really believed it. But he was completely serious. In a joking tone, trying not to show any rancor, I asked him what stone he had crawled out from under. As it turned out, his sexism became a bad joke between us. He continued to bait me, and I smirked back every time I got a higher grade. Doris Lessing I resigned without returning to work. Talking to my boss had reminded me of all the mortification and anxiety I felt in trying to keep my head above water. In principle, I could have still sought my parental leave as it was my legal entitlement. But I didn't have the heart to face any more resistance. I no longer wanted to apologize for wanting to care for my children. My practicing certificate and insurance, which had been renewed annually by my employer, elapsed within months of my resignation. I considered paying the fee myself in case I found a way to work on small projects from home or even just to swear affidavits. But setting myself up in private practice was too expensive and time-consuming to make it worthwhile. The hardest lesson was yet to come. I had let my job define me. My self-worth was unhealthily rooted in the ability to call myself a solicitor. I cringed at being identified as a stay-at-home mom and hated questions about my occupation when filling out forms. After the incessant treadmill I had been on at work, I found it hard to slow down during the career break, and now, having left my job for good, I kept up the brisk pace I'd set with my children. Walks, trips to the park, to beaches for shells, to every petting farm I could find, until the public library kept the children distracted and the meltdowns at bay. I made cookies and volcanoes, finger painting and origami. I prepared healthy meals and we ate early, leaving plenty of time to crowd up on the bed and read before bedtime. My children were thriving, but I began to crave time in my own head without their constant interruptions. I started to try to write in fits and spurts while the kids were distracted. But the more I retreated inside my own head, the more my children pulled me back, whining, kicking up tantrums, clinging onto my limbs for attention. And so I would return to the cuddles and the play, giving them nothing less than the full attention they sought. I didn't know at the time that Doris Lessing had called motherhood the Himalayas of tedium and said that there is nothing more boring 
for an intelligent woman than to spend endless amounts of time with small children. Her words would have made me feel less alone in my conflicting instincts and not any less maternal. After all, I had what I wanted, time with my children, but I also felt trapped. Lessing also said, I haven't yet met a woman who isn't bitterly rebellious, wanting children but resenting them because of the way we are cribbed, cabined, and confined. After she won the Nobel Prize for Literature, I read an account describing how she had left her children in Africa to pursue her writing career in London. I was a little horrified, but also a little thrilled by the thought of such a transgression against motherhood. Later, I realized that the account I'd read had been a bit misleading. She went to London not on her own, but with her young son from her second marriage, Peter Lessing. Later, she looked after a troubled teenage girl, Jenny Diskey, for whom she became a kind of foster mother and mentor. My children. I have a room at the back of my house with a door I can close when I want to insist on my solitude. My desk has a black glass top and a steel frame. It shows dust, fingerprints, and smudges and holds the clutter of my daily life. A stack of half-used notebooks, opened mail, scraps of paper with random scrawls, an oversized calculator I never use, a dirty coffee cup, a whole punch I borrowed from work years ago and never took back, containers overflowing with rubber bands, paper clips, highlighters, pencils, a protractor, a compass, a ruler, and a print stick, printouts of the children's latest school reports, a birthday card I bought and never sent, a wooden box with a collection of business cards handed to me by people I've long forgotten, a few books I started to read and left unfinished, the case for my glasses, a box of matches, two half-burnt sticks of Palo Santo balancing against an ink bottle, a yoga journal, a fountain pen, a pair of earrings I took off when they became heavy, a bracelet discarded for the same reason, and at the center, my laptop. There was a wood-burning stove and a low seat beside it. One or other of my children sits down occasionally knowing that I will listen, sometimes half-turned towards my work and my attention seemingly divided. I think they like it that way. And that was Dominique Cleary reading Advice on Motherhood, which appeared in number 72, the autumn 2018 issue of the Dublin Review. Can I start by asking you a question that I often ask people who write personal essays, which is how did it feel to open yourself up in that way? Did you feel vulnerable? Was there any question in your mind? And if there was, what pushed you to just do it anyway? I think this essay started off initially under a different in a different way. It was a it was um, on submission of something I wrote for my uh, MPhil. It was a, an assignment I did for the MPhil in Trinity, the creative writing one, and I sent it into the Dublin Review in the hope of something coming from it. But Brendan Barrington, in his very uh, keen eye, with his very keen eye, saw the motherhood portion of it and he really liked that and he asked me to um, expand it and in expanding it of course I became aware that I was not only touching on very personal material but perhaps also letting people in on how it was that my partner and I lived and you know it was also 
exposing the ins and outs of our interaction with the children. So of course it was um, it was a, a decision. I wrote it first as honestly and as openly as possible and thought when it came to sending it out, I'd pull back wherever I thought it would be compromising. But I was encouraged to leave it mostly as it was. And I think it's it, a good personal essay is always honest. Mm. The more honest it is, the more it, it's relatable. I think a lot of people relate to it as a result. And that in itself is sort of disappointing because obviously in, in its relatability it shows that many women possibly still had to make decisions in that way. Uh, so yeah, personal essays, the only way they work really is if you're absolutely honest. Mm. Yeah, I think honesty really is key. And it occurs to me as a mother that you are told a lot of lies ahead <laughs> of having a oh. baby. Yes. A lot. And this really sort of cuts through all the crap. Thank you. Um, oh, when I read it, I thought this is so relatable. Um, and one of the um, one of the most ridiculous lies is that you forget about it afterwards. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it again. And you clear you have you have not forgotten anything in this. <laughs> it's funny when you start excavating memories. Um, they just roll out one after the other. At least for me, when I start, when I sit down to write, it is like opening up a, a box of, of memory. And uh, I can, yes, I can remember it uh, with detail. And, and when you start delving into the detail, another, another appears and then another and then another. And suddenly you're living in that moment again, I guess. When you start to get into the flow of the piece and you're writing, uh, I do. I do get lost in them. Yeah. Mm. I think part of it, though, the experience, particularly after a first child, is that this idea of your identity mm -hmm. just becomes completely splintered. You Absolutely. don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I found it very difficult in a working situation because you have to keep the other side of who you are completely hidden. Uh, there's no they've, they've no interest in knowing how this the birth of this child has divided you, your identity into. And so I found not only was I no longer going to apologize for wanting to care for my children, but no longer was I going to apologize for not showing the entire me. So I'm a mother, you know, and uh, that's what I wanted to write about, I guess, is uh, to lay it all out. And yet, yeah, they don't want to know about it afterwards in the workplace. But initially, when you're pregnant and you announce it, um, you know, people talk about body autonomy. There are people who think they have the right to comment on your body. Yes. <laughs> and touch you and touch your belly and comment on the size of your belly, the size of your breasts. Um, absolutely. And how you present in the workplace in your in your maternity. Um, certainly, you know, you obviously I've, I've mentioned the comments. Yeah. And I, I like the structure of this essay. Um, you know, you've all these headings of all of the different people um, and what they have to say about it, because it does seem that everybody has an opinion about motherhood. And what's difficult about that is that you're so tired after having a baby and you're so, you know, as you say, you became um, 
so self-critical that you take everything. People just keep dispensing advice all the time. And I'm not sure that even that it's supposed to be helpful. Yes. And I think in your in, in my overwhelm, I was willing to try everything. So. So, yes, my I was I was listening to all the advice. I was opening books. I was hearing what everybody else did. I wanted to know how other people coped. I also wanted to find out what it was about me that didn't allow me to do what other women have been able to do, which is to continue to work and to stay in the workplace and to, to juggle, to juggle so well. So many women do such a good job at it. But there was something intrinsically me that cu I couldn't seem to, to manage. It. And I don't know, maybe it was the obstacles that came up in front of me and perhaps it was lack of support around me. But um, yeah, that was always something, a question that I could never get an answer to. And before you read uh, the piece, we did discuss your family background. And I did wonder reading this, whether if you had family in Ireland, because, the, you know, it is that old cliche, it takes mm -hmm. a village to, to raise absolutely, a child. And, absolutely. you know, would it have been different? Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Uh, my mother was working. I didn't have that extended family support that maybe some of my cousins do in Ecuador, you know, where they have not only mothers but siblings and you know cousins and there's a bigger there's a bigger pool of people I guess who can step in and collect the baby or you know step in for small things that make all the difference you know uh, I would never have expected my mother to look after my child because that's not something I would have expected of her but I think I think uh, there's a variety of little ways that many people can help in in in, in the wider family and I think yeah being away from home, perhaps that wasn't available to me. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, when I went to find this essay in my collection of issues of mm -hmm. the Dublin Review, I couldn't find number 72. And I think it's because I gave it away to somebody who was having a baby that they needed to read this. <laughs> and the only other time I've done that was I spent Anne Enright's book, Making Babies. <laughs> it was the book that I used to give to people because to me, she was the only one who told the truth. And the next time I came across that honesty was actually this essay. So I feel that it's the only issue that I'm missing out of the entire collection. Wow. So you must be. Yeah. So it's great that it has been published in Show Your Work, our anthology, um, because I can access it again and I could read it today before uh, before meeting you. But look, I really enjoyed talking to you and listening to you read the essay again. It is one of my personal favourites from the many, many, many issues that have been published. So uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Angela. You're very kind. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find the essay Advice on Motherhood in our anthology Show Your Work, which contains 14 years of essays from the Dublin Review. Contributors include Colm Toad Bean, Anne Enright, Kevin Barry, Dirini Griefa, Sally Rooney, Patrick Frayne and many more. Show Your Work is available at thedublinreview.com. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is edited by Brendan Barrington and is published quarterly with support from the Arts Council. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review.